Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Hey, uh, this is a really busy week for me, and so I I didn't really put a sermon together. Um, I thought maybe we could like share Christmas recipes and things like that. No, I'm just kidding. Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I do thank you that we gather together around a text. We are a textual community, the text of Scripture. And we look at it, we read it, we ponder it, we analyze it, and we apply it to our lives. And we believe therein you speak to us, that it is clearly spoken. And that what we have here is a record of your thoughts, your words, your intentions. And as we study, Lord, this little setting, this pericope of Jesus talking to this group of people, we pray that we would learn and grow and please you with our lives. We commit ourselves, our families during this holiday season. We want to glorify you at this Christmas time in Jesus' name. Amen. How many of you remember 1994, the famous lawsuit with McDonald's over the hot coffee? Do you remember that? Yeah. It happened here in town, by the way. A friend of mine owned one of those McDonald's, so I kind of got a firsthand um, view of it. But what was interesting is after that lawsuit, warning labels became very prominent, not only on cups of coffee. I think if you get a McDonald's coffee now, there's like flashing neon lights that say hot coffee. It's pretty big and bold. And a lot of items are like that. They're warning labels that tell us what to do and what not to do. Well, I decided to go around the house and look at a few items that I had and read the warning labels. So this is from a chainsaw that I had in my garage. Is that okay? <laughs> but it does say this, warning, do not operate chainsaw while upset. This guy saw one too many movies, I think. (laughs) Then I went into my refrigerator, and my favorite hot sauce is called Marie Sharp's Hot Sauce. It's from down in Belize. It says, warning, must be strong to handle this sauce. (laughs) Keep out of the reach of children. That's a good one. Then it says, do not play tricks on the weak or elderly with this sauce. So then I went on the, web, on the internet and found a website called 101 Dumb Warnings. Literal warnings on real products, but you'll get the idea. One brand of hair color said, do not use as an ice cream topping. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of people doing that. On a car sunshade, you know, the kind that you unfold and put in your windshield in the summer, it says, remove shade before operating vehicle. Do they think we're idiots? One blow dryer had a warning, do not use while sleeping. I'm tired, get my blow dryer and go to bed. On a Rowenta iron, a warning label said, warning, never iron clothes while on the body. And then finally, from a mattress company came this warning, warning, do not attempt to swallow. 
What, a mattress? Maybe kids in a youth camp might do that, but I don't know how many people would try that. These are warning labels. There's an even more important warning label that could be affixed to the Gospel of John, especially this last portion of the 10th chapter. It would read thus, Warning, unbelief is hazardous to your eternal health. Unbelief is hazardous to your eternal health. The title of today's message is To Believe or Not to Believe. You can tell that I stole the title from a very famous line in literature. Um, Act 3, scene 1 of Shakespeare's play Hamlet. He says, to be or not to be, that is the question. In that scene, Hamlet was actually contemplating suicide. Should he suffer through his life or should he end his life? To be or not to be, that is the question. Well, Jesus wouldn't agree with Shakespeare or Hamlet. The real question, the vital question, is to believe or not to believe. That really is the central vital question. Because belief transports a person to ever-increasing realms of joy and glory And unbelief destroys all of that. We begin today in verse 22 of John chapter 10. We'll read all the way down to the end of verse 42. This final section closes off the public ministry of Jesus Christ. After this chapter ends, Jesus, for the next several months until his crucifixion, will not give public speeches, will not do public miracles, but he will spend the time now nurturing his disciples and preparing them before he leaves. And this is really a fitting close to chapter 10 because it sort of sums up the entire book up to this point. The theme of this section is unbelief versus belief. Unbelief versus belief. And really the theme of John is believe. And that's the word he uses almost 100 times. And you'll see here seven times in just this section that word comes up. Verse 22, we start. Let's read all the way through it. Now it was the feast of dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Not our coffee shop, but the Solomon's porch. Then the Jews surrounded him and said to him, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you do not believe, because you are not of my sheep, as I said to you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, Many good works I have shown you from my Father. For which of these works do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because... You, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are God's? 
If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I do not do the works of my Father, don't believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe, believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Therefore they sought again to seize him, but he escaped out of their hand. And he went again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was baptizing at first, and there he stayed. Then many came to him and said, John performed no sign, but all the things that John spoke about this man were true, and many believed in him there. We have 21 verses. We have two groups One group is in Jerusalem at the temple. The second group is out in the wilderness where Jesus began his ministry. The first group comes to Jesus. They don't believe him. The second group come to Jesus. They believe him. The first group disregards all of the miraculous signs that Jesus had done and the personal testimony about him. The second group regards both the miraculous signs and the personal testimony. There is thus a contrast, a comparison between unbelief and belief that is set up. Something else to note. Unbelief occupies the greatest portion of textual real estate in our passage. There's 21 verses. 18 of those verses describe those who are in unbelief, while only three describe those who believe. And though John is simply making the contrast, I think we have here a ratio, if you will, of reality. In reality, even in our world, a majority of people do not believe in Christ. A minority, Christians, believe in Jesus Christ. Something else to note before we jump right in. There's a two-month gap between where we left off in the last message and where we begin in verse 22. Two months exist at least between verse 21 and 22 because in verse 21, all the way back through chapter 8, that setting takes place during the feast of, do you remember what it was, the feast of? Tabernacles. Do you remember that? Okay. Feast of Tabernacles. That took, it was, I know, it was many messages ago. Uh, feast of Tabernacles. That takes place during the fall time of the year. This takes place a couple of months after that, during the winter months, the Feast of Dedication. But let's begin. Let's start looking at the difference between belief and unbelief. First of all, the sinister nature of unbelief and the simple nature of belief. Now, there's some hallmarks, characteristics, if you will, that form the nature of what unbelief is. First of all, unbelief protects its true nature. What I mean is, unbelief often wants to disguise itself as something else. And not just say, I am an unbeliever. They want to call it, well, I have doubts. Now look at this, verse 22. It was the Feast of Dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter. Now why does John say that? Why does John say it was the Feast of Dedication and it was winter? He says it, first of all, because it was winter, physically, meteorologically. That was the, the weather pattern. It was the wintertime. 
But all he would have to say is, it's the Feast of Dedication. Everyone reading it who was Jewish would know. It always happens in the wintertime. 25th of Kislev every year. But I can't help but seeing a... John, I think, does this a couple times, where he takes a physical reality to infer a spiritual reality. Because by this time, the attitude that people had toward Jesus Christ was very icy, cold, hardened, aloof. They were on the war path. They wanted to end his life. We have seen that mounting attitude grow. So it was the Feast of Dedication, and it was winter. Physical climate as well as a spiritual climate. It mentions that it's the Feast of Dedication. The Feast of Dedication, also known as the Festival of Lights, occurred every year close to what we call today Christmas, but it's a different festival. We know it as Hanukkah. Jesus is in the temple during the Feast of Hanukkah. It was an eight-day feast. A little background will help you understand, I think, the impact of what John is writing. Um, Hanukkah, Festival of Lights, Feast of Dedication, was a non-biblical feast. It wasn't like Passover or Pentecost or Tabernacles. It was something that was not part of the Old Testament, but it was a festival that began between the Old Testament and the New Testament. There's a 400-year gap between the end of the Old Testament, beginning of the New. That 400-year intertestamental period was very significant. This is what happened. During that period, there was a Syrian ruler named Antiochus who gave himself the name Epiphanes, which means the great one. Literally, it was I, the great one. He had a problem with humility. He loved all things Greek and sought to impose Greek culture, Greek language, Greek everything on the people of the Middle East. He thought he would go into Israel and force them all to abandon their Jewish beliefs and become Greek in culture. Well, they resisted. So in 170 B.C., he conquers Jerusalem He slaughters a pig on the altar of sacrifice, spreading swine juices throughout the temple, the most unkosher thing anybody could do in Judaism, right? He sets up an idol in the temple area to Zeus, demands that everybody worship the false image of Zeus, puts an end to circumcision, puts an end to all the festivals. And this goes on for a few years until a group of Jewish priests, just south of Jerusalem, known as Hasmonean priests, under the leadership of Mattathias, they were Maccabeans, uh, decide they're going to rebel and revolt. After three years of guerrilla warfare, Mattathias and his sons, one of the sons named Judas Maccabeus, is successful, throws out the Syrians, gains independence, reestablishes correct worship in the temple, and they set up a festival called the Festival of Lights. It was an eight-day feast, and here's why. Here's the legend, at least. The legend says that there was only one flagon of oil that was to last one day to light that seven-branched candlestick or menorah in the temple. Remember that? Only one day's worth of oil. Miraculously, the story says, it lasted for eight days. So it became an eight-day festival, still celebrated that way today, called Hanukkah. And Jesus is walking in the temple during that time. Now, why does John give us that information? Because 
What happened with Judas Maccabeus, that was the last great deliverance the Jews knew in their history. A guy came and overthrew their enemies and became their temporary military political messiah. And it's as if John wants us to know that that's the kind of messiah they were looking for when Jesus was walking through the temple. They were, they were sick of the Roman bondage, the Roman oppression. We want a Messiah like that one. We want a political military ruler like that one. And so they come to Jesus. And in verse 24, notice the question. They say, how long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. It sounds like it's an honest question. I submit to you it is not an honest question. They simply want Jesus to say what he has always said to them. He has claimed he was the Son of God. He claimed to be God in human flesh. He claimed to be their Messiah. Loudly, repetitively, clearly. And they want to hear it again because they want to kill him. I think I know that because twice in the story we read, they either pick up stones to kill him or they try to seize him. They're simply looking for a way to arrest him because they don't think he's the one who's going to pull it off for them. But they ask him the question. How long will you keep us in doubt? They call their condition doubt. Jesus calls their condition what it really is, unbelief. He says twice, once in verse 25, I love this. Jesus answered them, I told you. Don't you love that? How long are you going to keep us in doubt? Tell us. I told you. And you do not believe The work that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep, as I said to you. Here's what I want you to see. There's a big difference between doubt and unbelief. You see, doubt is looking for answers. Unbelief doesn't care about the answers. Now, I think that everybody struggles with spiritual reality. Everybody, I think, has spiritual doubts. Even the greatest biblical heroes and non-biblical heroes have. How many of you, on a show of hands, have ever struggled with doubts about your spiritual faith? At all? You've struggled with them? Okay, great. Put your hands down. I'm glad. How, how many of you have never in your life ever once struggled? Okay, see, I'm glad you said that because it shows you're human. You're not some robot that you've actually fought through struggled with, and that's okay. Oz Guinness, great thinker, said, find out how seriously a believer takes his doubts, and you will have the index of how seriously he takes his faith. See, doubt is not the enemy of faith. Doubt is not the opposite of faith. Doubt implies faith. Doubt presupposes faith. In fact, doubt works its way through the difficulties and finds at the end a faith that is reasonable and satisfying. Doubt does that. Unbelief is different. Unbelief decides against faith and at all costs keeps anything that would engender or produce faith completely away. Matthew Henry put it perfectly. There are none so blind as those who will not see. That's unbelief. These people in Jerusalem didn't believe. And Jesus twice says, you don't believe. That's the problem. So first of all, it protects its true nature. It disguises itself as doubt. Second, it rejects the narrowness of Christ. 
Look at verse 31. The Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, Many good works I have shown you from my Father. For which of these works do you stone me? When he uses the term good, it's the Greek word kalos. It means noble, wonderful, beautiful. Think of all the compassionate things Christ did. Healing people, opening blind eyes, unstopping deaf ears, raising people from the dead, curing them of leprosy and diseases. So many noble, wonderful, good works. They replied, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Oh, they got it. Oh, they understood exactly what Jesus was saying here and had been saying about himself in the past. Jesus couldn't have been any more plain. He told them clearly and repeatedly who he was. Here's a sampling. Back in John chapter 6, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever eats of this bread will live forever. In John chapter 7, verse 37, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness. Again in John chapter 8, he said, Before Abraham was, I am. And then he said, If you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. He told them very plainly that he was it. He was the one, the guy they had been looking for, the Messiah, the Son of God. And they repeatedly rejected the narrowness of his claim. That's a characteristic of unbelief. Have you ever heard something like this? <clears throat> well, <clears throat> I, I, I just can't believe that Jesus Christ could be the only way to God. Ever heard that? I hear it a lot. I know you hear it a lot. If you live in the real world, you hear it. It is true, 67% of the world's population, over 4 billion people, do not subscribe to what we believe. So they look at us and go, so what's up with you guys? Why are you so arrogant? What makes you think you have a corner on the market of truth? And so what unbelieving people love to do is draw the analogy of the God on the mountaintop. You see, it's like this, they say. God is on top of a steep mountain. He's up there. And down below are all these people in the world, all wanting to get to God. And they take various paths, but all lead the same place up the mountain to God. So on one side of the mountain, you might have somebody carving up a windy path. On the other side, a more direct route. And everybody down below is so hung up on their path, not knowing that all paths lead to the same place. What's wrong with that analogy? What's wrong with that analogy is it's convenient for unbelievers to have it, but none of the founders of the religion they're talking about would ever agree with that. For instance, if you were to go to Muhammad and say, Muhammad, I believe that all paths lead to God. Do you agree? What do you think he'd say? He'd say, absolutely not. He taught his followers to fight against anyone who believed that. If you went to Moses, let's just take the three monotheistic religions. You said, Moses, do you think, I know there's a lot of pagans that hang around out, out there. Do you think all, all paths lead to God? He'd say, um, I set before you this day, 
life and death, therefore choose life. If you were to go to Jesus, hey, Jesus, you know, you're really great and you say some cool stuff, but I think all paths lead to God. Would Jesus agree with that? Let's say he said, uh, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. What I want you to see is that these religious systems and the founders of these systems all fundamentally disagree with each other. And the systems themselves contradict each other. So they can't all be right at the same time. They can't all lead to the same place. A better analogy wouldn't be the mountaintop analogy. Let me give, let me give you another one. A maze analogy. I don't know if you've ever been to a maze, maybe even a corn maze, right? They have little paths cut out. Or if you've ever been to some of the um, old, huge mansions in the East Coast or in Europe where they have these huge hedges and mazes, and they're quite fascinating. Well, in a maze, you have different paths that lead in different directions. You might have one that dead ends. You might have two paths that parallel each other for a long time. One eventually dead ends, one keeps going. You might have one path that goes all the way toward and almost into the very center of the maze before it stops. But there is in the maze only one correct right path. Jesus said, Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life. And few find it. Few? Why few? Hey, Jesus, how come few find it? Is it because there's not enough room in heaven? I'm sorry, we're all booked up. So many people can't fit them all in. Or, well, I like you, but I don't like you. No, the reason that few find it is because the path is too narrow for most. I read a story about a teenage boy who just got his driver's license, a very dangerous combination. And um, I know this from personal experience. Uh, this teenage boy took a wrong turn and went down a one-way street the opposite direction, the wrong way down a one-way street. So all this oncoming traffic is coming his way, and he's dodging. Finally, a policeman sees him, pulls him over, and says, Where are you going? He says, I don't know, officer, but I must be late because everybody else is already coming back. (laughs) Do you ever feel that way? You feel that way that you as a Christian holding this set of beliefs that you and I do, that we're going down through oncoming traffic. Everybody's going the opposite direction. We're just sort of like going this direction. Jesus said it's a narrow way. Look at verse 34. Jesus answered them. Now notice what he does. He goes right to the Bible. He answers them. Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? That's a direct quote. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? We have a third characteristic of unbelief. Unbelief neglects the testimony of Scripture. Jesus goes right to their Old Testament and he quotes a text of Scripture that would validate his ability to make the kind of claims that he makes. It's Psalm 82, where the Lord, speaking through the writer Asaph, 
the Lord says, I have said, you are gods. The Hebrew word Elohim, gods. Now, God is speaking to people that are other than God. They're human beings. Probably he's referring to the judges of Israel. Remember the judges? There's a whole book about them in the Old Testament. These were God's representatives. Have I not said you are God's? And so he quotes that to them. He's speaking to people. God is speaking to people less than God on a human level, giving them the term as representatives, God's. So here's what Christ does. It's a typical rabbinical argument, arguing from the lesser to the greater. And here's his argument. If men, in some sense, can be called gods, then how much more appropriate would it be to give the designation to someone who is authentically sent from God and who is the Son of God? That's his argument. Now, some of you might be mystified at the term Son of God. And they will, I've heard this argument. Jesus never said he was God. He said he was the Son of God. Well, the Son of God is one who has the same nature as God. It's not that you, know, you and I are sons and daughters. We're children of the living God by faith. But when the Bible calls the term Son of God, it applies uniquely to Jesus because he has the same nature as the Father. That's why he says, I and my Father are one. They understood him. They picked up stones to kill him because they said, you being a man are making yourself God. Son of God is a term of deity. Then look at verse 35. I love this. Look what's in parentheses. And the scripture cannot be broken. Hey, question. Do you think Jesus had a high view of scripture or a low view of scripture? High view of scripture. Well, he did. The way Jesus speaks of scripture, he says, oh, and by the way, it can't be broken. It can't be set aside. It can't be nullified. It can't be broken. What I want you to notice is that Jesus regards the unity of Scripture and the inerrancy of Scripture by saying the Scripture cannot be broken. Did you know that Jesus repeatedly in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John refers to the Old Testament as the authoritative Word of God? Now, here's a question for you. If Jesus is wrong about that, how could you trust him with anything else? How could a person ever say, well, I trust in Jesus as my Savior, but I don't believe the Bible is the Word of God. Well, then you're not following the same Jesus I'm talking about. Show me your view on the Bible, and I'll show you your view on Christ. He says, and the Scripture cannot be broken. But one of the hallmarks of unbelief is to neglect the testimony of Scripture. It goes something like this. Well, the Bible is man-made, a bunch of books written by a bunch of guys who were well-intentioned, but they contradict each other, and it's a long time ago, and it's very inspiring, and it's probably good to own a Bible because you can press flowers and write names of your family in it, but you don't live by it. That's how the unbelieving world regards the Bible. In the state of Indiana, there are six state parks that have hotels in the state park. And because the hotels are in the state parks and the Gideon Society wants to put a Bible in every hotel room, the um, Department of Natural Resources, pressured by the ACLU, have decided to affix a warning pamphlet to the Gideon Bible. 
so that when you pull out the drawer in the hotel to get a Gideon Bible, if you left yours at home, there's a warning pamphlet that says, and I quote, warning, literal belief in this book may endanger your life and health. And the pamphlet advises that the Bible is a violent, racist, sexist fable. Classic unbelief, not doubt, unbelief. That is then the sinister nature of unbelief is seen here in these verses. Let's look at the second. Let's look at faith. Let's look at belief. Verse 40. And he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was baptizing at first. And there he stayed. This is where Jesus began his ministry when John the Baptist baptized him. Then many came to him and said, John performed no sign. Now they're comparing John the Baptist to Jesus. John didn't do any miracles. This guy did. But all the things that John spoke about this man were true. And many believed in him there. There are two reasons why they believed. And it's quite simple. Belief is simple. They believed in Jesus, first of all, because of the things he did, the signs and the miracles that he did. They saw blind people seeing and they thought, we've never seen that before. No other guy we've ever seen could do that. That was a tip off. The second was the testimony of somebody they respected and that was John the Baptist. So there's there's two issues I want you to see about belief. Belief evaluates objective evidence. You say, Skip, what do you mean by objective evidence? Something that is objective isn't tainted by my prejudice or bias. It's observable. It's universal. Something subjective is what I experience and what I believe. But there's objective evidence. Jesus performed signs. Nobody else has performed those kind of signs. That's evidence to them. And belief will evaluate objective evidence. What I want you to see is this. Faith is not some blind leap in the dark. That's what Soren Kierkegaard used to say. Well, you just, you just take this jump, this blind leap into faith. No, it's, it's not presumption. It's based on evidence. Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. By the way, everybody has faith. Everybody has faith. Do you know it takes faith to drive a car? You may not know about how electrical systems and automobiles work or air and fuel mixture or fuel injection. You might not understand that, but you believe that when you sit in the car and you put the key in that little hole and turn it to the right, it's going to go and start. It takes faith to eat at a restaurant. And some restaurants require more faith than others. Yeah, you you believe that they're going to give you a a good meal. They're not going to poison it. There's nobody back there trying to kill you. It's going to nourish you. You're going to get a good deal. You you believe that. It takes faith. It takes faith to go to the bank and cash a check. You've got to pay check. There's no intrinsic value in that piece of paper. But you're believing that the company who wrote that to you will keep their promise and the bank will respect that promise and give you cash for it. It takes faith to do that. Even the atheist has some modicum of faith. It's faith that is reasonable faith. To go to a doctor takes faith. 
You never saw him go to school. She uses big words, so she must know what she's talking about. So you can go on the Internet and get big words. But it says MD. Well, you hope it doesn't mean mentally deficient, that it means medical doctor. (laughs) But you are entrusting your life to somebody that you don't intimately, personally know. There's nothing objective to it. But it is reasoned because you did ask people and their testimony and, and his or her qualifications is seen in other procedures. It's enough for you. You believe it. Well, there's some objective things about Christianity that if you evaluate, it makes sense. It's reasonable. And I don't have time to go into it. We'd spend months on that. But just the uniqueness of the Bible. The Bible is 66 books written by over 40 authors, written over 1,500 years um, about controversial subjects like the problem of man, the origin of the universe, the eternal nature of things. All of these controversial subjects by all of these authors, and yet they all agree with each other. Then there's prophecy. No other holy book has prophetic literature like the Bible. The Bible speaks about events, predicts events before they happen, names people's names before they were born, talks about kingdoms rising and falling before they existed. And then there's things like the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I've read the testimony of many unbelievers who wanted to overthrow Christianity, who took a hard look at the resurrection of Christ, Frank Morrison being one of them, an unbelieving British lawyer, and he gave his life to Christ as he examined the objective evidence. Second thing about belief, it appreciates subjective testimony. These people down by the Jordan River knew John the Baptist. And John the Baptist said some things about Jesus, and they said, you know what? What he said is right. It's true. What things did John the Baptist say about Jesus? Well, he said this, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist called Jesus the Son of God. John the Baptist said of Jesus, His sandal strap I am not worthy to unloose. And then he said, He was preferred before me because he was or existed before me. Now, John was older than Jesus, and John the Baptist says, He was before me. Just a reminder, you know that John the Baptist and Jesus were cousins, right? That means they hung out together. They went to the feast together. Every family reunion, they were together. To me, that adds a little bit of weight to John saying who Jesus was. How many of you would ever say of your cousin, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Here's John the Baptist who knew Jesus as a relative and made a testimony about him. And these people said, yep, that subjective testimony turns out to be right. Now, here's how I want to end this. Christianity is a universal experience. 2,000 years ago, it's a long time ago, Jesus walked this earth and changed people's lives. And if Christianity was valid, you expect people to have their lives changed. But since 2,000 years ago, up till the present moment, Jesus Christ is still changing lives. I see the evidence all around of people who were one way and their lives get changed. But it is narrow. And Jesus said, enter the narrow gate. Not ponder the gate, not contemplate the gate, not argue about the gate, not have a class discussion on the gate. Once you're all past that, now it's time to enter the gate. Because at the end of the day, 
It's a personal relationship with a personal God with the persons that he made. That's what he wants. So will you heed the warning label? Unbelief is hazardous to your eternal health. Well, if you believe in Jesus Christ and he is your savior, I want you to stand to your feet just now. And in standing to your feet, we're going to pray together. We're standing up more than just stretching and getting ready to go after a long message, some might think. But we're getting ready and standing before the Lord as His army. People who love Him, who will go out against oncoming traffic, not trying to hit all the cars, not being obnoxious, but graciously shining the light knowing that because we're facing an onslaught of people going in the other direction, it's going to require strength. It's going to require grace. But light shines in the darkest places. And during the Christmas season, when people are playing these Christmas songs and and, and even humming some of the words that glorify the Lord, it's maybe the only time in the year when a window is open in their heart that allows us to meet up with them and share the truth with them. Let's pray for that. Father, we stand as your ambassadors. We stand as ones being sent out into darkness because Jesus said if we follow him, we would never be in darkness but have the light of life. I pray that we'd shine that light this season, that we would be good ambassadors, that we would be generous and gracious representatives. Help us to do that. Help us to keep you front and center this Christmas season. And we stand up saying we believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the Redeemer of mankind. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.